Live More Real, a podcast about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world. The challenges we face and how we deal with them or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, the dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life and hopefully, by listening, it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. Adam is highly empathic and as a child was able to receive information that he had no control over. He had no boundaries and so unfortunately was bullied at school and became an easy target for those who were prepared to cross boundaries. Adam struggled for a large period of his life to deal with understanding all of this and why everyone wasn't the same as him. His relationships with women were affected, resulting in him looking for partners that he could help and heal and that could help him. Ultimately, this led to failed relationships as he wasn't receiving what he needed. In his 20s, he was diagnosed as suffering from schizophrenia and was advised to take time out to reset his life. It took time for Adam to realise what he needed to do. We talk about his work as a therapist, his child who is also highly empathic, what it is to be a man and what it is to be Adam. I've not met anyone like Adam before, so for me, this was a fascinating and insightful conversation, which I truly hope you enjoy as much as we did. Okay, so welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. For being here with me. A quote by Jeff Bezos, we are what we choose. So why did you choose in your line of work, human suffering? Can I address the quote first? I don't actually agree with it. Okay. I would say we are what we are. And we don't really get much of a choice about that. Nature kind of packages you up with a certain array of talents and values and desires and aspirations. And you can either go with that, um, in which case she rewards you with lots of pleasant emotions to say, well done, following the script. Or you can go against it, in which case you get what I call restorative, what most people call negative emotion to say, ah, wrong way, go back. And to the extent that we cooperate with that, we get to live a happy and fulfilled life. So the second part of the question, which is about why I choose human suffering, because it's unnecessary. You know, it's, it's unnecessary and for the most part it's pretty easy to fix. What nature equipped me with was the values and the talents and the you know, capacities to address human suffering. I tried a few other things in my life and went in a few other directions, which were all very interesting, but none of them give me the sense of joy and passion I get from doing this. Was there anything in your life that made you want to pursue, given what you just said then, that because it resonated with you suffering? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you know, what, you know, as a psychologist, my focus is on trauma. I mean, all mental illness really is trauma, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I think what gives me the ability to be good at what I do is that I've experienced most of it. So, you know, name the kind of, you know, kind of traumas that a first world type person is able to experience. I've probably had most of them. That doesn't, however, qualify to me to be a good therapist. That just means I have lived experience. What qualifies me to be, you know, an effective therapist is that I've managed to resolve those for myself. And in that path of learning to resolve that for myself, which involved a lot of study over the last 30 years of all sorts of different therapies, I've been able to translate that into helping other people do the same. I guess, you know, you teach what you need to learn and you learn what you need to teach in some way. And so in terms of, you know, things that have happened to you, where you've learnt stuff from them and you've been able to teach other people, what sticks out for you as being the first point where you kind of went, okay? My earliest memory 
that I that I can consciously recall. My earliest memory is I don't know. We moved around a lot, so I don't know what house it was. But we were. I was standing in a hallway, and my father was close to screaming at me that there is no such thing as God. Now, I'm not sure what I'd said to him to start this off, but he was very upset. My father was a, a committed atheist, I mean, a, a fundamentalist atheist, in the way that atheists can be far more religious about their beliefs than a lot of religious people. And my memories of standing there and of, of having a presence standing beside me going, it's okay, he's been hurt by religion, it's okay. Just just maybe don't talk about this anymore. And so that's my earliest memory. In terms of earliest... And interrupt you, does that, does that person, that, that was, does that come to you since then? Or is that just in that moment? I don't... I, oh, it's come to me since then. I'm told, because I don't have a lot of memory prior to about 10, I'm told that I was always highly empathic about people and always knew things about people that I had no way to know as a kid that you know and I I was I'd tend to walk up to people and who were smiling and happy and chatty and say why are you so sad and they break down crying and things like that so I'm told that that was my experience my did you did you see that as a as a a chat like a, a hindrance to you almost where you kind of felt all this stuff that was coming to you about other people and then kind of had to deal with that or wasn't like that you were too young and you no, I would say, I mean, it made my life difficult. In, in some ways, it, it probably made me a target because, you know, to kind of maintain that level of empathy, you've got to have very open boundaries. So, you know, for people who were inclined to cross other people's boundaries, I, I was an easy target. So certainly in my school years, I would say that certainly made me vulnerable to bullying and as well as other things I was socially inept and you know the fat kid who preferred reading to playing sport and that kind of stiff stuff so you know it's kind of how it happens and in my 20s it certainly I think by the time I think about 30 I was given a diagnosis of schizophrenia by a doctor because I was just telling him about my experience of people and my experience of life and he decided that was hearing voices and things like that and but it was quick he didn't you know he was he was pretty cool he just kind of I was a bit burnt out by that stage and a bit overwhelmed by life and he just told me to go buy a tent and camp in the bush for a couple of years up in Byron so I did you literally wow yeah it was great I didn't manage a couple of years in the bush I was probably in the bush only for about six months but you know it was um yeah it was great it was a real reset point in life I just got to get up go for a surf come home make some lunch I was hanging out with a mate, have an afternoon nap, get up, go for another surf, head into town, have some meals, you know, talk to people. Had about six months off. And so you weren't, you, you didn't say it, but you weren't challenged at all. If someone said that to me, I'd be kind of like, and if that's not what I thought was going on for me, and someone's just giving me their interpretation of what they thought, then I'd be like, well, okay, you don't get what's what's... What's in my head? I, I don't think I agreed with it. I don't think I agreed with the diagnosis. It really didn't worry me. And, you know, basically he gave me, you know, six months off to, you know, gave me a six certificate. So I had six months off to kind of put myself back together and, you know, recover from the last period of my life, which had been fairly tumultuous. So, you know, he kind of did me a favour, I thought. I think he was... I don't think he was intending to give me a diagnosis so much as he was giving me a way to take some time out and from life. So going back to that point you just made about that period of your life then, so was it just, were you constantly having this influx of empathy where you were understanding, you met someone and then go, okay, wow. And that happened, you couldn't control that. I had very poor boundaries. I'd say I had no boundaries. By that stage, I'd been, you know, kind of working as an empath already, which is counselling essentially, but, you know, on the fringe. Uh, yeah, so I, I had very, very poor boundaries. You know, I, I, it was not something that I knew how to shut off. So, by so would you just say, sorry, would you just therefore, when you mean by boundary, if you saw, you know, you felt something, you wanted to say something, you would just say it? Oh, no, I, I, I wouldn't just violate other people's boundaries, but I really had no 
understanding of how I could stop the information coming in. Okay. How I could stop, you know, now, you know, in my profession, if we were going to take a scientific point of view, you know, they'd say this was mirror neurons and, you know, it was, you know, the capacity of empathy and they've, you know, they've reduced it down to a very physical thing. It certainly wasn't my experience. My experience is I was getting information from all sorts of places that would prove to be incredibly accurate, but I would have no idea where it, you know. And this was like a, this was spiritual? Did you sense it like that there were uh, like another from another world or you wasn't like that? So my experience of life from a very early age is that there is no such thing as another world, that this is all part of the same. People have varying levels of awareness about the levels of reality we experience. Some people experience, you know, what would be called the transcendent or the numinous quite naturally and quite easily, some people not so much. I'd say everybody experiences this to some extent, but we don't necessarily have conscious awareness of that experience. Certainly for me, I experienced it very broadly, very richly for as far as I can remember in my life. So I wouldn't say it's another world, it's just another level of information. And as a young child, did you struggle to cope with understanding what that was that what that what was that was happening to you or did you talk could you talk to anybody your parents or I don't know a friend or people who just thought you were crazy I think I learned pretty early on not to no what I what I had trouble understanding was that people didn't experience this you know I the the experience I was having seemed perfectly normal and rational and you know it was just my experience so you know it's like that's reality but I, it took me a long while to understand that not everybody was having that experience, that not everybody perceived reality in that way, you know, and they, were, they would be threatened by someone who knew too much about them. So, yeah, I, I think I learned fairly early on just to shut it down and not say things. And then so how did you deal with the people who would react to you, which I totally get. Some people would be very challenged by someone saying to them, oh, you're this and this yeah. and whatever. Yeah. How did you cope with that? I just didn't say it. Just but, but when it did happen, though, because you said to me before, you know, bullying and whatever else, I, you know. I did. By the time I sort of really, you know, I have conscious memory, which is kind of, you know, I don't have a lot of conscious memory before about 10. I think I'd learned shut my mouth (laughs) (laughs) and then even so in terms of relationships with people that you had you know partners or whatever I don't know I don't know if that how that happened or that happened to you how did that manifest itself you got close to people Um, I I had terrible choice in partners Dan because what I would perceive is their need and their suffering and their pain and you know I'd, I'd leap in there to try to save them heal them do that sort of thing, which of course meant that I just got my head kicked in on a regular basis by romantic partners and had very poor boundaries and got a lot of abusive behaviour from the various women that I was engaged with for quite a long time. Yeah. And did you, how many did you go through with that? And you know, before you went, oh, okay, it's like people. Someone would say to me, or my brother says to me, the definition of madness is doing the same thing and getting expecting a different outcome. So. Oh. Do you just keep doing going? Go well, it's a little embarrassing, but probably until I was about forty-two years of age. You went enough. Uh, that's when I went. I think that's when I really understood that what I was engaging in was codependence, and that you know what I, I was kind of trying to save them in the help that they were going to kind of save me. And you know, at, at that point, I sat down and went, "Well, that doesn't work." You know, I've been doing this for a long time. I, I can say with a fair degree of confidence that just doesn't work. Can't save them and they can't save me. So I kind of at that point went, well, you know, well, I'm just, I'm going to save myself. I'm going to, whatever this this wound is I, I still haven't dealt with, I'll, I'll deal with that and I'll leave them to deal with theirs. So, yeah, so that was kind of early 40s. And you've had relationships since then? Without the, with... the day after I made that decision, my wife walked into my living room. Wow. And we've been, we've been together ever since. And so what has changed in you that's meant that that relationship works and the others didn't? I, I was no longer looking for someone to say, you're okay. 
and to kind of liberate me from my various traumatic schemas of who I was and who I was supposed to be. And so I was no longer attracted to people who were going to be codependent with me and I was more attracted to and attractive to people who were more whole within themselves. So, yeah. And have there been times since you've been together where you kind of go back to stuff that's happened in the past? Oh, yeah. we, we, I mean, we both brought our baggage to the table. Every relationship has baggage. Um, you know, we've both been still on a journey of healing and, you know, deepening and all those good things that come with relationship. But it hasn't been from a point of view of codependent. It hasn't been, you know, I'm going to parent your child, you're going to parent my child. We're going to parent our own children. We're going to deal with our own stuff. Not perfectly, of course. There's always crossover and projection and, you know, it's like, I, I don't know if that ever stops. If it does, it probably hasn't yet. So, But it's, you know, there was a fundamental attitude of responsibility for self, which means that, you know, when that stuff happens, we can kind of step back from it and talk about it and go, well, you know, no, here's my boundary or there's your boundary and... Yeah, so. And did you explain when you met her all the stuff that had gone on for you in the past or did you, that wasn't talked about? Oh, yeah, I think, you, you know, the, the normal kind of, you know, sit in a coffee shop and I tell you my history, you tell me your history and, you know, all of that, that those bonding experiences that new couples do. So, yeah, it was pretty much all on the table. <laughs> yeah. And have you got siblings? I have two two full siblings to my biological father a sibling to my stepfather and three step siblings and with your biological did any of them have the same experiences you had as a you know you talked about just now in terms of your childhood and your challenges or not or did you ever talk about it i in terms of my experience of myself my yeah. openness um yeah I don't think, no, I don't think either of them are really as oriented in that way as I am. But yeah, they certainly had their challenges. So, yeah. And have you met through your work other people like you? I certainly in the early years of my life, more, more kind of on the, you know, what is regarded as the fringe. Of healing is is the more natural therapies and yes I've met a lot of other people like me less so in the world of the psychologist mm. I think if you've got that in you they tend to try to beat that out of you at uni yeah certainly other people like me I think there are a lot of people with high empathy and and you know high openness to experience so why not because st- a lot of people try to fit in I mean I have yeah. a real issue in the world with people conforming and doing what everybody else does, whilst I get it on some level. Mm. Um, so given who you are and what you just talked about, why didn't you stay in that area, that natural rather than that psychological where it's that, as you said, they try to beat that out of you? Oh, good question. For, for me, they are the same area. There's just been some artificial distinctions put in between you know science is exclusive of that and that is exclusive of science and the two groups tend to be fairly antithetical to each other to me all the good practitioners kind of work between the two you know i've i've you know i'm a great respecter of the scientific method and you know that's you know i believe if you're going to be practicing some type of therapy you need to be able to say with a fair degree of confidence that it works and that you're not going to be doing any harm by doing it and you know, I, I'm very aligned to the um, philosophy of psychology, which is, is that, you know, the scientific practitioner who is self-reflective and, you know, self-aware and it's a good fit for me. And, you know, a lot of the, the so-called fringe therapies are now being, have now been investigated and found to be just as efficacious as the you know good old cbt and you know particularly in the trauma field so i think there's a kind of emerging integration between the two and i think that psychology as a profession is moving back towards its roots and away from the medical model 
which pathologizes everything and you know treats symptoms rather than actually going well hang on a minute this is a behavior behavior has purpose what is the purpose of the behavior and you know what needs is it meeting and how can we do that in a way that's more optimal that has less of the side effects of some of these behaviors so um to me they're a good fit um and i think also i got to 40 and went you know i'm gonna need a piece of paper at some point i'm gonna have to figure out what i do when i grow up and you know i'd done everything from hospitality to sailing square riggers to publishing tourist magazines to you know a range of different jobs and the consistent theme across all that time had been therapy i'd always been studying and part-time practicing some kind of therapy so i went okay well you know it's it's a bit of a struggle in the world without the piece of paper so i'll go and went to uni wasn't quite sure what i was going to do at uni signed up for an arts degree with i think i was going to major in psychology and writing and got to uni on day one started talking to my neighbor in the chair who was telling me about her degree in indigenous studies trauma and healing and i went wow i like the sound of that so i swapped and then i came back to the psychology stream um, down the track yeah and so at times you must have struggled with life so how did you cope with that in terms of depression and i think the same way anyone else copes with it you know Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Did you exist? What did you did you turn to specific things that helped you get through that? Or I, I've I've never gone too far into any particular thing. You know, I like a drink, but it doesn't like me, so I don't do too much of it. You know, I dabbled with narcotic substances. Didn't like most of them. After the second time, I had ecstasy. I swore off having ecstasy because I just went, no, I could get to to like this too much work exercise relationships just you know you know i often say to clients who say you know i've got an alcohol problem or a drug problem it's you know i've got an addiction problem so well the problem is you don't have enough of them you know a little bit of alcohol and a little bit of sex and a little bit of netflix and a little bit of gaming a little bit of that that's that's just called a good life it's when you start specializing in one or two that you end up in trouble so I guess I never specialized too deeply in one or two to end up too deeply in trouble with them and so how did you get how did you deal with it then and what did you what got you through it and what got you through your darkest moments I think spirituality got me through most of it good friends you know therapy here and there just getting up and getting on with it and Lots of reading, lots of self-help books, lots of different practices of meditation and, you know, things like that. Just whatever I could find at the time that would ease the suffering, I guess, in some ways. And is there one thing that stands out now, as you recall? I think the consistent theme of my life has been spiritual connection. That's really kind of when things get have gotten dark that's where i went to and spirituality means different things to different people so what does that mean to you oh, i hate that question <laughs> i've spent a lot of, i mean i've studied a lot of different spiritual traditions and a lot of esoteric ideas and for me spirituality is simply an experience and it's you know i'm i'm not the first person in the world to say this but you've had the experience or you haven't had the experience and if you haven't had the experience the idea is ridiculous you know that if you haven't had the experience you live in a finite world within a you know finite capacity and the idea of something as total as infinite as god or spiritual or whatever you want to call it is absurd but once you've had the experience the idea of a finite world is absurd and it's indescribable because you can't it's like a fish trying to describe the ocean it's just you know and, and you know words by themselves divide and you can't divide that which is indivisible and any attempt you make you just end up well i just end up sitting there feeling like an idiot because i'm i'm absolutely failing 
to describe what is literally indescribable. So for me, you know, you say, oh, so you believe in this. Well, it's like, you know, to me to say, do you believe in God is like saying, do you believe in trees? It's like, well, it's just my experience. It's just what is. So I don't really need to believe in it. It's just there. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm always connected to it by by any means. You know, I spend most of my time completely and utterly in the human world, having all the human dramas and all the human experiences and all the human aspirations and all the human, you know, problems. And when I'm in the human world, that seems like a very remote experience that I have a memory of. And yet when I am once again connected in what I would call the numinous or the spiritual world, all my human dramas seem somewhat slightly amusing. You know, so it's it's kind of like it's a holiday. I can kind of go go and take a holiday in spirit and, you know, settle down and then jump back into human experience and go, right, what's next? And so so when would you do that? And that, that spiritual mind, that experience, when does that happen to you? Randomly or you, do you choose how to do that? Um, I'm very fortunate because in my job I get to do it all the time. You know, you know to, to sit here with a client who's coming for psychological help is very much an, an act of connection and you know whether you want to take the christian thing of you know when two or more gather you know it's like in in the in the creating that connection with another human being there's for me at least invariably a third party involved there's there's that extra connection to the numinous because quite frankly i don't have the capacity you know, if I was just relying on techniques or understandings or therapeutic approaches, I wouldn't be very effective. You know, half of my job is really kind of just connecting, waiting for the, I guess, the inspiration or the impulse to come to kind of go, okay, this is how I need to respond to that. So for me, you know, therapy is is, is a tripartite experience between me and, you know, whatever you want to give the name to that and the other person. And a lot of what I'm really doing is, you know, I'm really just helping that person tell a bigger story. But, you know, that story isn't my own invention. It comes from the ultimate bigger story, really. So To me, that sounds amazing. I and mean, I'm sure you could then explain to me that, well, that's just part of, as you say, that's this world that we live in. Yeah. Do you ever kind of go, and it doesn't come to you, you're sitting there and... There's no inspiration. There's no, and you're like, mm, okay. <laughs> All that never happens. Because if I can get out of the way, it comes. So it's like your ego. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if I'm there kind of making this about me or, you know, my ability to help or if I'm, then I can get a bit, you know, or if I get into thinking about, oh, I don't know what to do with this. You know, I'm, I'm a failure as a therapist. I'm a, you know, if I, if I get into anything like that, then I'm disconnected. It's not that it, it doesn't come, it's there. It's just waiting for me to reconnect. But I can disconnect from it. But, you know, as I've gotten, you know, progressed through my life and through my profession, I'm better at not doing that. I'm better at just kind of just, okay, I don't know what to do in this situation. So take a breath and wait. And let let the knowledge come through yeah that sounds amazing <laughs> well that that's why i said that's the privilege in my profession is i get to do this as a practice eight hours a day and i've always wondered that don't you get exhausted after seven hours of doing this where that there's a constant kind of the, your ability to concentrate to listen to advise to guide to whatever all of that's intense uh, about seven sessions a day is the most I can do. I hear about psychologists and therapists who do like 12 and I'm just like, I don't know how you do that. You really must be phoning it in because I don't know how you could possibly connect at that level with somebody 12 times a day. About seven, I'm, I'm done. Um, you know, I've occasionally had to fit someone in and done the and and the eighth person is not getting the best of me <laughs> because it's like yeah I'm, I'm a bit done but i'm i wouldn't say exhausted by it i'm i'm enervated by my work i i'm energized by it all the time but 
there is a physical limit to how much of that level of concentration and connection I can... And the connection that you bring to the experience that you have with your clients, yep. you take that away with you at the end of the day and you have to, you carry that. And so there are points where you just... You, you do have times where you just struggle with what you've heard, what you've been part of? No. I've, I've become very good at not doing that. Once I finally figured out I had to set boundaries, I became very practiced at setting boundaries. So going back to what you're talking about as a, when you were much younger, that whole... Yeah. yeah. No. You know, in my training business, I teach people how to avoid the carries trauma. And so I've become very good at, you know, when I'm in the room, I'm connected. When I'm out of the room, I'm not. I don't take it home. I mean, occasionally something will kind of sneak in and then I have to go and take myself away and sit down and deal with it, but not very often anymore. Yeah. I, you know, my, my family deserve me at home. They don't deserve me bringing all my clients with me. Mm. So Go back to the... I was interested in the six months you took off and you talked about what you did. Yeah. In that time where you said you surfed and yeah. didn't do much, what part of... Of the healing process or healing did you do in that experience apart from just completely detaching yourself from I guess what was going on for you before that I threw myself in the ocean That's so would it be a nature thing that you'd you know, yeah, say, yeah, yeah I can't I, I can't live away from the ocean I just can't it's just I'm, I'm not a happy camper if I'm not near a large body of water at least preferably the ocean and did you know that before you went on that experience or that came after uh, I, I've always wanted to live near the ocean. I grew up near the ocean. I've always wanted to be near the ocean. I, you know, all I can say about that six months is I spent five hours a day in the ocean. Relaxing and chatting and, you know, wandering the beaches of Byron and, you know, it was great. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> I like the sound of that myself. I think I'd like to do that. So what do you do then? I was using that as an example then. What do you do for yourself now then? How do you love yourself? I need to exercise daily. Um, I need to be in the water daily. Down here it's a pool rather than the ocean. It's too cold. So it's... And sunshine, which can be a bit of a struggle in Melbourne, but when I can get sunshine, get sunshine. I very much need lifestyle. I get... Winters, I I get a bit seasonally affected. You feel down? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Particularly winters in Melbourne. I mean, there's this... Yeah, that and, you know, my job, of course, is very elevating and energising too. So that's really, you know, a blessing in that way. Yeah. And you've got children? One, yep. And so do they have any of the same, going back to what you talked about and I asked you about your siblings and any of the same experiences you had? Not that he's revealed to me so far. He's highly empathic and he's, you know, we haven't, he hasn't ever kind of come to me and said, you know, Dad, I'm having this experience or that kind of stuff. You know, I, he's highly empathic and, and seems quite intuitive, so. And when you say highly empathic, he, he, you're just in the conversation, that's as obvious, or you just sense that anyway because you, you can read him. Oh, he, he, um, he can't tell a lie. He just can't. If he tells you a lie, he comes back and tells, tells you it was a lie. And, you know, if he does something that in any way fractionally infringes on the feelings of somebody else, he's devastated by it. He's absolutely, you know, he's just a really nice kid. <laughs> so that's how it works, because I, didn't, I yeah. didn't understand that. That's If you're that yeah. impacted, so you, you, just, you just always it, tell the truth? Well, it's, you, you kind of... I mean, you don't want to hurt somebody else? You, you don't want to hurt someone else. You don't. You can feel it's the wrong thing. You know, it's sort of, you know, the difference between a psychopath and a human being is is that you know, guilt and shame. You know, the, the human beings have this natural inbuilt moral compass, which are these emotions of guilt and shame that say that didn't feel right. You know, that's that that wasn't the right thing to do. So, you know, some some people have it to a greater extent. Nature has said that some people are to be you know, I guess warriors, you know, they're, they're highly competitive and, you know, love to win and, you know, don't seem to have a higher degree of empathy and some people are designed to be, you know, those really good nurses you find in the world who are just kind of love on legs, who just kind of nurture and look after everyone else and, 
you know, nature's kind of gone well. I need a, you know, I need some people to do the the mean stuff, and I need some people to do the nice stuff. So it's whatever, you know, it's not wrong or right. Whichever you got, you got. And do you, are there are issues, but do you, do you do you not struggle, but the challenges between the two of you because you are so alike in that way, or that's just it's actually a greater connection. I've never thought about that. Well, I don't have any other children to compare it to. So, no, but you were a child yourself. Like yeah, you had, you had um, brothers and sisters and stuff. I suppose. I I that. have concerns. You know, I I I've given a lot of thought to how I help him to establish boundaries and not end up getting bullied and mistreated as I allowed myself to be as a child, you know. So giving, really kind of giving him that sense of entitlement, you don't have to put up with mistreatment and, you know, you you know, it's like it's nice that you feel empathy for the person who's mistreating you, but you can still put a boundary on that behaviour and, and refuse to tolerate it, so... And do you think that works? You've had those conversations that's worked for him? As far as well, yeah, we do. We have those conversations a lot with him because he is so empathic. And he just really doesn't get the whole mean kid thing very well. <laughs> he knows they're there, but he just doesn't understand why. So. And that must be really challenging. And then, so going back to that as an example, then for you, do you go back to those memories now? At times, when you were bullied, when you felt that pain, when you does that, do those things happen to you because you just feel that, or not really? I mean, that you know, you know, my stocking trade is trauma, and I wouldn't be much of a trauma therapist if I hadn't dealt with my own. So, what I say to clients all the time is, trauma isn't what happened to you; trauma is what you make it mean about you. So, you know, if you come through a bad experience and you feel like, I don't know, Bruce Willis at the end of Die Hard, you're not traumatised by it, you're empowered by it, you rocked, you succeeded, you were the conquering hero, no trauma. Trauma is when you come out of a bad experience thinking that you were defeated, broken, bad, wrong, you know, weak, useless, diminished in some way. That's the essence of trauma. It's, it's not the event, it's the story that we tell about the event. You know, I've done a lot of work on my own trauma. I honestly cannot picture the faces of the boys who bullied me or the girls or remember what their names are. The only memory that still has kind of impact for me back then is the one time that I was unjust in the way I responded and and mistreated another kid. And, and that one sits with me very strongly still you because know. of who you are because i don't want it not to you know it's like it it was you know i it's you should feel bad when you do bad things and now you shouldn't be condemned for that it's not like oh i'm a terrible human being and don't deserve to live because i've done a bad thing because we've all done bad things but you know i don't want to not have it there as a kind of as a cautionary tale in my own head saying you know, that's what happens when you cross that line. So, yeah, but so, no, it doesn't really bring that up for me, but it does bring up for me that, you know, there's the awareness of, you know, I want my son to know that he is entitled to defend himself. He doesn't have to allow his empathy for others to make him a target for them. That must be, for me, I feel the burden of that, as in a sense, it's always challenging to, for anyone to navigate their way through life. I've got three children, so you, you've got to deal with yeah. all stuff that they have to deal with and help them and guide them. I mean, not everybody does that. I choose to do that. Yeah. Given this extra layer on top of life, do you feel a, like a greater sense of, I don't know, you have to give more of yourself or, or you feel more deeply for him or his experiences in life? I don't want to be a helicopter parent. I don't want to be somebody who stops him having his experience. I want to be there to help him deal with his experience when it happens. You know, I can't, you know, put a, a glass wall around him and, you know, things are going to happen to him. My job, is, I see it, is, is to teach him to keep himself safe, make sure he's not exposed to inappropriate experiences for his age. When things happen, to help him work his way through that. I don't know that it's any extra, though. I think that that's the responsibility of every parent 
yes, not every parent takes that responsibility on, but um, I think it's definitely there for each one of us. What does it mean to be a man? So I've been involved in the kind of men's work side of things since I was about 20. And I've had a lot of people tell me their ideas of what it is to be a man. Some of the, you know, men are tough and rugged and da-da-da, and some are men are, you know, soft and emotional, empathic. And I think it means to be you. You know, you are who you are. I have no right to tell you what that should look like. You know, some men are naturally high testosterone you know very competitive very much about acquisition and achievement good on them society needs those and some men are very nurturing and empathic and emotional and good on them and society needs no needs those and you know i think men do best when they can move between the two when we can be you know what we need to be in that moment when our our identity and our personality is sufficiently flexible that we can respond to the impulses that are within us and I don't think anyone has the right to tell you who you should be Um, don't you think society does tell you that that a man should be as you said high testosterone strong should be powerful courageous and, and women see men in that way and therefore when a man doesn't live up to those expectations then all of a sudden oh you're not a man well that reflects on the person making the judgment more than it does on the person being judged yes that happens of course it happens you know with and the research is very clear that you know men who are bigger stronger more aggressive are more attractive to the opposite sex particularly in the early years young women like big strong aggressive men you know women get to their 30s and start thinking oh hang on a minute you know other qualities become more important but i i ultimately i think if a man values himself he will be valued by others and the problem is not you know whether you're you know hyper masculine or more towards the the softer end of things it's like if you value yourself others will value you you know eleanor roosevelt said people can only put you down if you agree with them so you know the work i've done with men has always been to help them to value themselves and i think you know as we talk about this kind of the line between the boy and the man and the man is a man when he becomes his own authority when he becomes the author of himself and the author of his life the author of his identity you know whatever you're still looking for validation approval blessing from others you're kind of still stuck in that boy looking for the the blessing of the father but once you kind of go well you know what this is who i am and i'm okay with it and that's what i'm going to do in the world because it makes me happy then for me you've you've become what would be called a man i guess i don't know but yeah, I, I don't subscribe to any, and I don't subscribe to the groups who want to tell people what to do, you know, whether it's the, the old style, you know, you're supposed to be tough and invulnerable or, or the modern, you know, all men are bastards, you're supposed to be all soft and compliant and, you know, you know make sure you don't, you know, sit with your knees more than th- three centimetres apart because then you're man-spreading or all of, you know, there's, there's this kind of counter push which seems to me to be about very much disempowering men's right to define themselves so i don't subscribe to either of those you know and so how would you then so are you able to express yourself freely and openly in in your relationships with people in life you you're are you able to be very vulnerable or vulnerable appropriately so you know it's like you you pick your audience well, I realise I'm not picking my audience now. It goes to anyone who wants to listen. You know, I'm not going to, you know, if somebody's being, you know, aggressive and intrusive, I'm not going to kind of show them my belly. You know, equally if, you know, if people are open and friendly and I'm not going to show them, you know, a hard sword. It's like it's, you know, you sort of judge judge you know level of level of self-exposure level of self-revelation 
is kind of audience specific you know if i sense that someone's really open and up for a you know kind of deeper emotional connections like that's great they're rare and that's that's really nice but if you know what they're after is a kind of shallow tete-a-tete then sure but don't you think we just said then for me that is there are more people are interested in the deeper connection men but they're not able to go because they haven't been taught that even though i totally get what you're saying about you shouldn't be one thing or another you should just be who you are and and I, i get that but there are a lot of men who i've met they do want to be able to express how they feel but yeah. don't feel they're able to do that because either don't they don't know how to do that they were never taught that so they I, just don't connect I, that. I think it's beyond what not being taught that I think they've been highly conditioned away from it well, yes you know I remember when I was I was uh, studying it I was doing a counseling class at uni and sitting with a group of people doing a kind of sharing process and you know I was talking about vulnerable feelings and I, I remember I looked over there was this sort of 20 year old girl sitting opposite me and I, I kind of stopped and I went that's a look of contempt on your face you you feel contempt for me in this moment and she was a bit taken aback because she'd been caught but she had to say yes I do you know it's like the you know I think there's this boys learn very early on that vulnerability is not a is 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 not going to do them well with the opposite sex they learn to construct that facade and, and i don't think it's toxic masculinity or tra- i mean traditional masculinity as far as i'm concerned is you don't abuse people and you're gentle with gentle people and you know you, you you're fair and honest and play by the rules that's that's my idea of what traditional masculinity is is you're a gentleman but i think boys learn very early on that that you know if if, if you want to get the girl then you you better be more indiana jones than for it, you know, kind of thing. It's and yet that changes, as you just said. You, you know, you get to your thirties, or and, and that yeah, I think women grow up, and men grow up. You know, I think it's you know, I think you know, basically pre twenty seven, twenty eight, people's sexual choices are driven by the reptilian brain, which is, you know, feeding, fighting, and fornication. It's 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 like you know, it's all about genetic suitability, genetic fitness establishing territory establishing dominance you know it's the it's the reptilian brain and i think you know kind of in that late 20s the the more mammalian brain kicks in and goes well hang on it's not all about that because you know you, you actually the woman's going well we want this guy to stick around because we you know if we're going to have kids we need someone to actually provide and protect and there's a natural switch in both men and women men switch towards more responsibility and and look for more committed relationship and women are doing the same thing um, before that it's you know it's a free-for-all it's like you know if you survive to your 27 because the genetic records show that 50 percent of males never did 50 percent of males never bred um, you know if you've you know if you've killed the mammoth and not been killed by the mammoth and not been killed in a war and then nature says okay well you can breed now <laughs> Uh, you've proved your fitness so we'll let you pass your genes on so yeah I think people grow up yeah what defines who you are I have no idea Carl Jung said we spend the first half of our life constructing the ego and the next half deconstructing it and I I can you know I, I think if you're hitting your growth points your maturation points in life that's true by the time you get to 40 you've really bored with yourself you it's you know it's like oh, I, I, it's you are who you are you don't need to wrap a concept around that you don't need to define it defend it assert it get other people to agree with it and and approve of it and and you know unless you've got some kind of you know personality disruption where you're still trying to do that but if you've had a fairly healthy developmental lifespan by the time you're hitting 40, you're just like, oh, I'm just completely bored with this idea I have of who I am. I'm just going to be who I am in this moment. And well, that's certainly my experience. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know who I am. I don't want to know who I am. I don't need to know who I am. Who I am arises in this moment and it does what it does. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, it does something else. And I just kind of get to watch it doing that and kind of go, okay, well, that was interesting. 
because you know who I am now at 50 is not the person I was at 40 and 30 no. and 10 and you know I look back and then they're just like well who was that <laughs> so yeah I, I, I think the 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 function of self-definition is the function of the ego which is necessary for the early part of life mm. we have to differentiate we have to separate but if the, and if that ego roughly conforms to the felt sense of self, the felt experience of who I am, then you've got a pretty happy, healthy human being. If that ego has been imposed from outside as this is who you're supposed to be and this is what you're supposed to do and that is not consistent with your felt sense of self, then you've got a problem. And so what human values would be important to you then? To me, kindness, but, you know, balanced by appropriate boundaries. You know, be, be, be kind to kind people. Avoid assholes. Kindness, I guess, is um, fairness. I guess an ideal of forgiveness. An ideal of people are doing the best they can do and you've got to put limits on some of their behaviours, but, you know, judge the, judge the sin, not the sinner, I guess, would be... Um, those would be my... Um, responsibility actually my 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 guiding value now is responsibility be responsible for yourself be responsible for your contribution to the world when I was younger it was all about rights it's all about you know what my rights were and what other people's rights were and standing up for rights and, you know, activism and, you know, sort of, you know, it's very Greta Thunberg. Now it's like, well, if you want to change something, change it. If you think something needs to be changed, then put the effort in, do something about it, which is a much more humbling way to look at the world. You've a lot much. It's hard to be righteous when you're working hard at something because you realise how difficult change really is. And not every, and no one else is responsible for it. If you think the world should be a better place, then make it a better place. Be creative. Don't be reactive. I think that's good. Uh, good advice. Mm, thanks. <laughs> okay. You've okay. been great. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's been interesting, fun. If you're naturally a therapist, my experience is that people who are naturally therapists are also naturally musicians and artists and performing artists. And, you know, they tend to have this kind of constellation of, you know, their yeah. storytellers in some form or another. Yes. Because ultimately therapy is storytelling. It's, you know, people are never broken. It's only their story of self that's broken. So your job is to help people come to a better story of self and there's lots of ways to do that and it's you can't just tell them a better story of self because they don't believe you so you've got to help them arrive at that in their own way but it's so people who are naturally therapists tend to be storytellers in other ways as yes. well often musicians you know most people mm. come to me because they have an, uh, an emotion they're not coping with and and you know i say to them so what are your emotions for and they have no idea. Uh, it's like it's like saying to somebody, "What are your feet for?" And they don't know. And it's like, well, you know, your emotions are telling you about your needs. Mm. They're telling yeah, you whether totally. your needs are being met or not. Yeah. So, why aren't you listening to them? And it's good because they've been taught not to. They've yeah. been, you know, or they think that that emotion is some kind of weakness, or that that emotion's, you know, anger is is much maligned as an emotion. It's like, you know, it's well, it's the most incredible creative force that t tells you to attend to your boundaries and goals. You know, it's like, and and really, it's once they start just accepting what their system is trying to tell them about life, they're well on their way to things get better. I woke up when I was. 35 living in a garage in Byron Bay going hang on this wasn't the plan I'm supposed to have a career and a family and a you know BMW and a nice boat and it's like what, what hang on and I got quite depressed about it for a while and that that voice that helps me out on occasion kind of went yeah but it's been interesting and I was like oh 
It's like, yeah, but none of my plans have ever worked out. It's like, yeah, but your plans weren't very interesting. In fact, they were kind of your mother's plans. So it's been interesting. And I was like, yeah, it has, actually. I've spent a really good life so far. And all I've ever done is the next thing. All I've ever done is the thing that attracted me to do next. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's a very interesting point. And so I could say exactly the same thing to what you said. You know, I'm 53, just 53. Mm. And I... What, 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 what I think I saw myself, where I thought I would be, all those material things that you just described, which I don't buy into at all, and yet I've been told, or I've even told myself, my ego told myself, that's where I should be. Those things, those things haven't happened. But I've done lots of different things. I've learned so much about myself and other people and just the human experience that has given me at times, I've got to remind myself of that, that voice, you know, I don't have it quite the way you've just described it, but it's still, I remind, I'm able to remind myself and go, you know what? It's okay. It's, it's, yeah, or whatever I've done, the things that I've done have had a positive impact, have made people happy, have done what, you know, and I've had moments where I've been, this is great. Yeah. Well. What's wrong with that? That's pretty good. Yeah. It, I mean, I, it's, it's more than pretty good, but yeah. That's the analogy good. I use for this is often it's like you know every cell in your body has a purpose and first its first job is to survive because if it doesn't survive it's not doing its job and it's a burden on the body mm. it must take what it needs and then it must do its job yeah whatever that job is brain cell do brain stuff and skin cell do skin stuff and then it must share what it's got left over with the cells around it so that they can also get nutrition and its final job is to die and be replaced by something else it's it's like if that cell gets too ambitious, we call it cancer. Mm. Yeah, and the people who there are people who do get too ambitious, and their impact on the world is generally not a positive one. Mm. So you know, it's sort of it's you know, there's a bit of that kind of again coming back to the the the, the Christian tradition of be a little humble is what I have to remind myself because yeah I was going to save the world I'm when I was five I was going to be the Prime Minister of Australia you know it was like um, you know it was and it was there were, there were very grandiose visions of how I was going to save the world and they paralyzed me they paralyzed me for 20 years yeah because they're not um, you know I, I wasn't willing to make the kind of sacrifices it would need to yes. achieve that and B it didn't feel good when I tried to do those things I didn't feel good doing it but every time I've ever done what feels good I've liked the outcome yes I totally resonate with that and that's why I'm saying to you to come back to the same point that this to me feels really good yeah so that's why I'm going to and why doesn't, how do you know what impact this is going to have? I never know what my clients take away from yeah. our sessions. Like, uh, I'll do this and I'm, you know, giving it my best and I think this is the thing that's going to change their life and da da da. And they come back six months later and say, you know, that thing you said back there that I've completely forgotten. That was the, that was it. Yeah. That was the one. That was the, that was, and, I, and I'm just sitting there going, really? That was, I was, I was feeding a, pearls over here you know <laughs> so i thought <laughs> you know i thought that was it you know well see that says yeah that's also so true as well because even though i've just said what i just said i don't know whatever you think may be have the impact it's that's not always the case it's, no, it's you, said, you just said it something else completely different you can't know that i can't so i just all i can do is my philosophy now of therapy is options i'm just saying here here are some options do the one that feels right to you because if I think I know which one's going to work for you I, so half the time wrong, yeah. I'm getting it wrong yeah. that's that's actually about me that's the one that would work for me yeah. whereas I'm just going well here's, here's a different way to look at that or here's three different ways to look at that or you know here's how the Buddha looked at it or how you know <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like here's here's how other people have looked at it, or yes. you know, kind of thing, and 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 kind of and just hope that one of them is the one that works for them. Mm. Sometimes it's a good approach to have. Yeah, but you know, I've had to learn it from getting it wrong. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just, you've learned it. <laughs> well, maybe. Or learning, 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 learning. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay.
You've okay. been great. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's been interesting, fun. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you have, please tell anyone you know about More Real. I love creating a space for real conversations. So if you know anyone who would want to be on this podcast, please email me at morereal1, one is spelt O-N-E, at gmail.com. Once again, morereal1 at gmail.com. I'm very grateful as always for your support.